And so last week, as we were finishing up our four-chair discipling conversation, we examined what we called sticking points, the things that have the tendency to slow our ability to progress or cause us to become stuck. And this morning, I want to get a little more specific in examining barriers to producing much fruit. You see, barriers are things that make progress impossible. So it's not just a sticking point, but it's a, it's a barrier. Progress is not possible. Now, unlike the sticking points from last week, worry, wants, and wealth, which did not indirectly, I want to remind you, correspond to the four chairs, the four stages of fruit production do correspond directly to the four chairs. Chair one, no fruit. Chair two, fruit. Chair three, more fruit. Chair four, much fruit. And we do well to remind ourselves once again this morning that the goal that the Father has for all believers is that they would bear much fruit. You see, this is exactly what Jesus says in verse 8 of our text this morning. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is the goal of the Father, that all believers would bear much fruit. Or in our context, as we've examined these chairs, make it to chair four. But we will see together this morning that there are things that serve as barriers or as an impasse to bearing much fruit. The barrier, the picture, if you will, of a barrier is literally that of a wall that does not allow passage. No progress can be made through the barrier. And there are things that exist that do this very thing. Absolutely stall the growth of the believer and then keeps them in doing so from bearing much fruit. And I would submit this morning that the primary difference is that sticking points, again, we talked about this and we looked last week in the four chairs, the primary difference is that sticking points are for those from chair one into chair two. And we said last week that the majority of the chairs don't produce lasting fruit. And so we talk about sticking points. It's what keeps us from producing that fruit as we progress from chair one into chair two. Whereas this morning we'll see that for the believer who is in chair two and ought to be progressing to chair three and then into chair four, there are barriers that hinder our ability to do this very thing. And so as we look at our text this morning, we see Jesus is making his way with his disciples from the upper room and the gar- to the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, if you're familiar with God's word, then you know it would be the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. But on his way to the garden, he would use this time with his disciples exiting the upper room as an opportunity once again to teach his disciples. Now, about a month or so ago, probably a little longer than that now, we looked at the reality from John 15 of abiding in Christ in order to be able to bear any fruit at all. Without abiding in Christ, we cannot bear fruit. And so here I want to examine the words of Jesus to his disciples as they pertain to their ability to bear fruit. Again, as we've noted and as we have already seen, this is the crux of the matter For the follower of Jesus Christ, the issue of bearing fruit and specifically that the follower of Jesus would bear much fruit 
and in doing so, so prove to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it must be noted as we begin that the only way to bear biblical fruit is to remain in Christ. Ten times between verses 4 and 10, Jesus uses the word remain as it pertains to the disciples remaining in him in order to bear fruit. If we are to bear fruit, then we must remain in Jesus just as the disciples must have remained in Jesus. Now, I think we do well to understand this morning that initially remaining with Jesus was simply staying with him. You remember early on in this conversation, perhaps, where Jesus had this interaction with a couple of John's disciples, and they said, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see. Remember that part of our conversation? Jesus simply invites them to come and stay with them. But as we progress through John's gospel, and obviously as we progress through John's gospel, we're progressing through the amount of time that Jesus was spending with his disciples. But as we progress through John's gospel, we see that remaining in Christ transitions from a physical thing, staying where he is staying, to a spiritual reality. We see this in John six fifty six, for example. And then we make our way to John eight thirty one. And remaining is now a fully developed spiritual reality when it comes to abiding in the words of Jesus. John 8, 31, Jesus says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Well, to abide in the word of God is a spiritual thing. And, and Jesus says, this is the reality. This is how you know. When you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And so to remain in Christ is to do the things that the word of Christ says or calls us to. Literally, Jesus is communicating the reality that obedience marks our abiding in Christ. Okay, We're called to bear much fruit. And so we have to determine what it is that keeps us from doing that. We're going to abide in Jesus, okay? But, but as we seek and strive to abide in Jesus and this idea of being obedient to what he's called, you know, even it was interesting, even as, as Chris sang there, and he paused for just a second, and, he, and, we, and, and I definitely could relate with him, right? Because we have a tendency to, to focus on the big things that, that hinder our ability to abide in Christ and to be obedient to God's word and to bear fruit of any capacity, let alone the fruit of disciples. But what about the smaller things? What about the things that we often don't give consideration to that we kind of gloss over? I would submit to you that more often than not, it's the little things in our lives that are a greater hindrance than the big things. Because the big things are obvious. The little things are a little more inconspicuous, harder perhaps to identify or harder to identify for what they are, distractions or hindrances to abiding with Jesus. And so we've got to talk about this reality of of being hindered from abiding in order that we can recognize how uh, it is that we're going to bear fruit or recognize that we must be abiding if we want to bear fruit. So let's read our text together, and I want to examine three barriers to fruitfulness in the life of the follower of Christ. Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine. This is the last of the I am statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Abiding in Christ is the requirement for bearing fruit. But we must be aware of the barriers that exist beyond that reality. We must abide in Jesus, okay? And that is, again, to remain. That is to be in his word, to know his word, and to be obedient to it. And if we're going to bear fruit, we must abide. But even beyond seeking and striving to abide, knowing the word, being obedient to the word, there are barriers. And so I want to look at three this morning. The first barrier is a very common one. It's a barrier that most of us, if we're willing to be honest, um, is, is more present in our lives than we probably want it to be. But the first barrier to fruitfulness is sin. And notice what Jesus says in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Right? Sin is a real issue in the life of a believer. Sin destroys a believer's fellowship with God. All right? We do not have time this morning to get into the, the conversation about, well, if you don't bear fruit for this long or that long, or how long do you have to have to not bear fruit before maybe you're just not a believer? Look, we can't get into that this morning. What we are going to tackle is this reality. If we're a believer, we have to understand and be willing to be honest about the fact that sin is present in our lives. Hopefully not unrepentant, habitual uh, sin that we just tolerate and roll with. But there is a reality that sin is in our lives. And, and because I do believe that Scripture teaches the eternal security of the believer. Again, this is not a free-for-all. But because I do believe that Scripture teaches the eternal security of the believer, then we've got to understand that when sin is in our lives, it breaks our fellowship with God. Now, right away, we've got to understand if the key to being fruitful or producing much fruit is abiding in Jesus and sin destroys our fellowship, that's First John then we've got to recognize the effect that sin has on the life of a believer. And Jesus says, every branch that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And we see this phrase, take away, right here in verse 2. And this is from a Greek word that carries the idea, <coughs> excuse me, of lifting up or moving to a different location. Perhaps you're familiar this morning with the instance where Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 6. Um, there's a situation where there's a paralyzed man and Jesus says, but he's talking to the religious leaders here because they're questioning Jesus and he's examining and then revealing the intents of their hearts. But Jesus says to this paralyzed man, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what he tells to the religious leaders. He then says to the paralytic, rise, pick up. There's that word. Okay, here it's translated for us. Pick up your bed and go home. Relocate. Right? And so this is reality we're talking about when Jesus says, I'm the vine and every branch of me that doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes away it. It picks up and relocates. 
Now, as this process would pertain to a vineyard, the context of John 15, a vine dresser will walk about a vineyard. And he's, in doing so, walking up and down his vineyard, he's looking for branches that have fallen for any reason. Could be a whole number of reasons why a branch falls, but looking for reason or for looking, for looking for branches that have fallen for any reason. And when they've fallen, that means they're no longer being supported by the trellis that is in place that's designed to keep them propped up. And so as the vine dresser picks up, as he walks to the vine, he finds these fallen vines, he picks up the vines and he replaces them. Or he moves them to the place that is best or most supportive in order that the vine can produce the fruit that would be expected. You see, any branch that's hanging down or laying on the ground is not going to be a fruitful branch. Every one of us have seen a piece of fruit, whether we've been out in the wild or maybe we had a fruit tree or a berry bush. If a vine or a branch sags too low and gets on the ground and fruit is resting on the ground, what happens to that fruit? It's rotten. It's no good. It's soft and it's mushy and and we don't want to eat that foot, that foot, fruit. So So the vine dresser picks up that vine, and he puts it back into the structure or gets it the the support that it needs. Now, this picture I would submit to you is pretty clear as it pertains to our lives and the presence of sin. You see, sin in our lives is like us, the branch, laying in the dirt. We cannot be fruitful as a branch that we are laying in the dirt. And then there's a number of reasons why. Right? Because as we've seen, fruit that's laying in the dirt is rotting. Okay? But also, if a vine that is supposed to be supported up, for whatever reason, has become down and is low, and maybe it's underneath another portion of the vine, maybe it's behind the trellis, what's it lacking? Sunlight. It's lacking the nutrients that it needs to bear fruit. And for the believer in Jesus, abiding must take place And as we've seen, this only happens through obedience to God's word. In any and all disobedience, any and all disobedience is sin. And sin is the greatest barrier to abiding in Jesus and being fruitful. The believer must deal with sin in their lives. And I love This concept of a vineyard and a plant and sin in the life of a believer because how is it that we ought to deal with sin in our lives? The same way Jesus says the Father deals with branches that aren't fruitful. You pluck them up, you get rid of them, and you throw them out. I'm going to tell you something this morning, believer. If you have sin in your life, stop dabbling. Stop experimenting. Stop toying around. Stop enjoying it. Uproot it. Rip it out and be done with it. Repent of your sin. Because there is no greater barrier to your ability to be in Jesus and be fruitful than sin. See, John would write for us, the same John in his first epistle, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful to do what? To forgive us and to cleanse us from that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we are going to be productive vines as believers in Jesus, we must deal with sin in our lives. And I don't want to beat a dead horse with a stick. But Jesus says in verse 5, 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If sin is present in your life, and when I say sin, I mean like unrepentant, I know I'm in sin, I'm committing the sin, and honestly, I'm not that worried about it. I'm just going to keep committing this sin. Understand the magnitude of what Jesus says here. When sin is present in your life that you are fully aware of and failing to deal with, you deal with, you can do nothing. You can call yourself a believer if you want. You can come to church on Sunday mornings. You can come to church every day. You can pray like you've never prayed before in your life. But when sin is present in our lives, we can do nothing of spiritual capacity whatsoever. Hopefully we're starting to see, like a vine that's laying in the dirt, a believer's life that's got unconfessed sin in it. It's not fruitful. It's not productive. And so one of the realities, and I think this is one of the things that um, I think the church as a whole, so I'm not talking about our church, but I'm just talking about the church as a whole has to do better. Is you know, oftentimes when we, we share the gospel with people and we invite them to trust Christ, you know what we don't talk about? Repentance. We don't talk about that to come to Christ, you must leave your sin. You must forsake the sinful ways and habits of the life that was lived apart from Christ and we go to Christ and we abide in Christ we repent of that sin. And furthermore, we must be telling believers that while yes, you have to repent of sin at salvation, listen, repentance, I don't know about y'all and maybe you're going to think differently of me when I say this, but I got to repent every day. Repentance is regular. It ought to be regular in the life of a believer. Because I'm going to tell you something. As long as there's breath in these lungs, I'm still marred by a sin nature. Even though I might be right with Christ, I'm still marred by a sin nature. And I've got to be aware and alert. Often seeking that God would point out to me. Demonstrate. Help me see, God, areas in my life that maybe I'm not seeing. Where I need you to reveal sin to me so that we can deal with it. Oftentimes, God reveals sin in our lives to us through our brothers and sisters. And so we've got to be teaching believers, people who are new to the faith, that repentance is part of the life of a believer, and that if a brother and sister comes alongside us and they seek and strive to, you know, kind of love us and be an encouragement to us and help us see sin and grow through sin, that we ought to receive that. Because it's vital and necessary in the life of a believer to repent because sin is the primary barrier to fruitfulness. I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians in the country of Romania, so Christians in the country of Romania, do you know how they refer to one another? As repenters. They literally refer to one another as repenters. And what a way to be known, right? What a way to be known as somebody who confesses sin by faith claims the promises of Christ's cleansing and moves forward in the power of the Spirit of God. Boy, I would, be, I would be just fine if people called me a repenter. Because this is a reality that must be present in the life of a believer. But it's not just sin that serves as a barrier to fruitfulness. Ironically, sin, we, we look at and we say sin is the bad thing. But ironically, barrier number two is good things in our lives. Notice the second part of verse 2. 
Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He, the Father, the vine dresser, every branch that does bear fruit, the Father prunes in order that it what? Would bear more fruit. So it's in this exact same verse here that Jesus talks about the presence of sin affecting our ability to bear fruit or to, we see sin as a, the presence of sin as a barrier, but then also good things. That's interesting. Pastor, good things are hindrance to fruitfulness. You see, Jesus, again, he tells his disciples, every branch that does bear fruit, it gets pruned by the Father. And because of this, I would submit to you this morning that there's a tendency oftentimes to want to stay in chair two. Spiritually alive, with a little bit of fruit, but more fruit is tough. It can be painful. It can be difficult. And so they come to Christ Individuals, they move from chair one, spiritually dead, to chair two, spiritually alive, and they are good with bearing little or no fruit. Again, we don't have time to unpack the whole no fruit portion, but oftentimes people are content to bear just a little fruit. But once again, Christ is clear that we are to be bearing more fruit. And as odd as it may seem, often good things can keep you and I from bearing more fruit. For example, let's again consider the picture of the vineyard. After all, this is the, the illustration that Jesus is using here. When there is a vine early in the year that starts to crop up and it begins to sprout, you start to see the leaves turn green and there's some, some life in it. Most of the time, you know what happens to that sprout that turns green and shows life? It gets cut. So we look at the plant and we say, oh, yes, it's vibrant, it's got life. Unlike this tree on our back deck, we've been leaving it, we've had it in this pot for two years, thinking that it's just going to randomly come back to life and it's just this dead tree in a pot in our back deck. We need to prune that thing for sure. But you got these vines that start to bear a little bit of fruit. What does the vineyard do or what does the vine dresser do? He prunes them. For example, if clusters... Clusters of grapes begin to form, and they're too close together. You say, hey, man, there's two, three. This cluster here is really good, and this cluster here is really good. We're tempted to say, we're going to let those clusters go. But what happens if we let those go is we wind up with just a few good grapes. But if we cut one of those clusters off as the vine dresser, this one cluster that's left actually produces more fruit than the two clusters would if they were left alone. They need to be cut away in order for the cluster that is left to be more fruitful. If a vine dresser does not trim away some of the good fruit in pursuit of the best fruit, then he will actually inhibit the overall fruitfulness of the vine. And as difficult as pruning can be, there is a bit of encouragement that comes to us when we consider the difficult process of pruning. Again, all vines that bear fruit get pruned. So it's natural for believers to experience pruning at the hands of the vine dresser. And this too can be understood as a good thing. 
You see, there is no time. This is an encouragement. There is no time when the vine dresser is paying more close and careful attention to the vine than when he's pruning it. If a vine dresser goes into the vineyard with an echo screaming, just mows down the weeds or mows down the vines, that's reckless. That's not, that's not caring. That's not going to produce fruit. But the way a vine dresser would trim a vineyard, if you watch, would be very slow, very carefully, very meticulously, with just a little pair of shears. Snip, snip, snip. There is no time when the vine dresser, the father, is closer to the branch, you and I, than when he's pruning it. This can be an encouragement, even, this ought to be an encouragement, even in the midst of the difficulty. Okay, everyone gets pruned. Everyone who bears fruit gets pruned. But what exactly is it that gets pruned? What are these good things that we speak of? If you think about a plant, again, it bears fruit. Oftentimes, you know what else is on a fruit or on a plant? Flowers. So a vine dresser, going to look at flowers, I've got very beautiful vines with, with lush plants and, and pretty flowers. I've got to cut them off. And sometimes that seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? We, I, I, I know I've struggled with this in my landscaping. I don't know what to cut off and what not to cut off. I usually have to call people. But I'm like, can I, do I cut that? Does, is that good? Is that bad? And oftentimes I find that it's good things that I have to cut back in order for the bush to be as as beautiful as it's intended to be. The flowers that look pretty might need to go in order for it to be all that it's intended to be. Because the reality is the good-looking flower prevents the plant or the vine from doing what it's supposed to do, bear fruit. The flower is in the way. And so the skilled vine dresser prunes that flower from the plant. And again, this is what makes pruning so difficult in the life of a believer. It's the good things that are often pruned, and it's hard to understand. If we consider the reality of barrier number one, sin, we can rightly understand, well, God's got to prune sin from our lives. We need God to get rid of sin in our lives. That's true. But you don't prune sin. You uproot sin and get rid of it. The vine dresser prunes the good things. The pruning is oftentimes suffering. Maybe that pruning looks like going through something that we wouldn't desire to go through, but it's for the sake of fruitfulness. Hebrews chapters 10 through 12, they address, it's, it's addressed to Christians. And it was written to them at a time when they were suffering when they were being thrown into prison, when they were <clears throat> losing their property and others who they were with and, and had community with were experiencing the same things. And the writer of the letter of Hebrews encourages the readers to persevere. Why? In verse, or chapter 10, verse 36, so that they may reap a harvest. That's interesting verbiage, isn't it? In the midst of their pruning or their suffering, good things being stripped away, the writer encourages them to persevere that they would reap a harvest. Pruning is tough. It's painful. And it requires submission to God and a willing spirit. But God's word reminds us that pruning is ultimately for our good. But we must be aware of the reality 
Because pruning can be difficult, oftentimes pruning doesn't have its intended effect. Because pruning is experienced in the life of a believer and it can serve as a barrier because I want to be honest, in this same passage here of Hebrews 10 through 12, the writer talks about, he says this in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. See, pruning oftentimes in the life of a believer lends to lends itself to bitterness because we don't understand why we're suffering. We don't understand what God is doing when he's cutting away good things, when he's working in our hearts and in our lives for the purpose of us bearing more fruit. And the writer of the Hebrews, he hits the nail on the head, doesn't he? When you're being pruned, you better seek the grace of God because it's the grace of God that will keep you from missing the fact that he is pruning you to be more fruitful and the result is, <coughs> excuse me, and the result of missing God's grace is bitterness. And he says when bitterness takes root and springs up, it defiles the whole situation. That's so common in the life of a believer. I don't understand what God is doing. And more importantly than that, I don't like what God is doing because it's difficult, because he's calling me to sacrifice. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something else. And we say, you know what? I don't really want to be pruned of good things because these are what's best for me. So I just want to stay in chair two and bear a little bit of fruit, and I'm good with that. It's very braggadocious of us to believe that we know what's best for us. God's word is very clear that he is high above us, that his ways are not our ways, and that his thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah 55. And God does nothing without intention, without purpose, and without plan. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're going to be fruitful, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful, and it's going to be difficult. But God is going to prune in order to increase our fruitfulness. And so when he prunes... Even if the things that he prunes are good things, we must seek the grace of God, as the writer of Hebrews says, to understand that it is for a better good. And in doing so, we must strive to not become bitter as God removes good in his quest for the best. There's sin, there's good things, and lastly, satisfaction serves as a barrier to sinfulness. And I want to I explain this because to me this one seems even more odd than good things. But satisfaction often serves as a barrier to fruitfulness. You see, too often we are content to just stay where we're at. To just keep hold of things that are comfortable for us, that are convenient, that are in line with you know, our desires or what we want. But this satisfaction can serve as a barrier to bearing much fruit. Because look, 
Satisfaction is a lot like good things. Oftentimes we're satisfied in things that are good things. And in those good things, we find ourselves resting or just kind of settling. You see, down in verse 8, Jesus says, we've already seen it, but let's look at it again. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I've said it a thousand times in the last eight weeks. I want to say it again. Much fruit is what brings the most glory to the Father. And oftentimes, one of the barriers that truly prevents followers of Christ is the satisfaction of anything less than much fruit. If we are not careful, we can become content or satisfied. Contentment is a good thing. Paul says godliness with contentment is a good thing. Okay? But this is why we have to be careful to recognize contentment and satisfaction, and it can also be a negative thing. Because sometimes we can become satisfied or content with bearing just a little fruit. If we're not careful, we can be deceived as we inspect our fruit as to just how fruitful we actually are. And we must fight against the tendency to be satisfied with anything less than what the Word of God calls us to. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a high, like, I get it. That's a high standard. That's a lofty goal. I, again, I don't know about you, but my poor, my, my oldest daughter, that poor girl, she got her work ethic from her daddy, not her mommy. Because I'd be like, oh, this is where I need to be? Okay, I'm going to get there and I'm going to get done. I remember this year at basketball camp, they had to do this little dribble drill. They called a spider and you go two in the front, two in the back, two in the front, and you had to get like 12 to get the goal. And Joy and Jilly, they practiced all week long so that they could get the goal. And there was a, a, a common thing that we saw with Joy, and she would get going, and she would get to 12, and she was, I got 12, and she'd stop. And then she'd start again, she'd get to 12, and she would stop. And she'd get to 12, and she would stop. And on Friday at the, at the camp, when they have the skills, and they see, and you see you get to 12, the first thing the coach said was, don't stop at 12, see how far you can go. Keep going. And honestly, guys, I think often the church today is a lot like, you know, I'm not like, you guys know, I mean, I think the world of my girls, I wouldn't train them for anything in the world. But again, I told you she's like me, right? We say, okay, this is just, this is enough. This is good enough. This, this, surely God is going to be pleased with this. Maybe it's even better than what it used to be or how it used to be or where we were yesterday, whatever. And we say, God's going to be good with that. And so because we think God's going to be good with that, we want to be good with that too. But God's standard, he says, is that we would bear much fruit. And oftentimes we can say, you know what, I'm bearing some fruit and I'm okay with that. I'm good with bearing a little bit of fruit. Is anything less than a desire to bring God the most glory possible with our lives? is settling for less than the best. Anything less than what brings him the most glory is settling. That's satisfaction. I'm satisfied with this. God, you've called us here, but we're satisfied here. We settle for anything less than the best, and in doing so, we rob God of his glory. So for the believer 
We must always make God's glory the primary pursuit. Not ours and not ourselves in any capacity. Seeking our own glory in any way will lead us to become content with whatever because we know that it's all good. If we're not careful, then our satisfaction can lead us. And this to me is the greatest danger of settling short of God's standard. If we're not careful, then satisfaction can lead to the development of a mindset that renders the unsaved or those who are not of us as less important. And this is contradictory to what the church has been called to. Now, you've probably heard me express before my discomfort with the statement, come Lord quickly. It's, it, I remember being in Bible college as a very new believer and struggling with the reality that says, just come, Lord, quickly. And I know that ultimately to be in the presence of Jesus is a good thing for the believer. And so there is a desire to be with Jesus and to be in his presence. But brothers and sisters, people are still lost. People are still dying in their sin and still on track to spend eternity in hell. And if we settle for anything less than God's, than what gives God the most glory, and we, and again, I hope you understand my comfort. I'm not trying to, to my discomfort. I'm not trying to, to pick on the phrase in a sense because we are to long to be with Jesus. But I want you to understand, I have never heard anybody outside of the church say, Woo, come Lord quickly. It's always the people who are right with Jesus. We just want to be with Jesus. That's a great desire. But that's not his ultimate desire. His ultimate desire is that we would bring him glory with our lives while we're here. And too often, I believe we're satisfied by the fact that we know when he comes, we're good. When he comes, we're good, so I'm okay with that. And if we're not careful, those those mentalities can breed an attitude that fosters a lack of care and concern for the lost. We don't bear fruit in making disciples. Now we know and we understand we have no control over what people do when it comes to the gospel. We can't save anybody. We can't make anybody believe. We live in a day and age where people are very much flat out opposed to anything that has anything to do with God. But that should never lead us to be satisfied with knowing that we're good with God. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Spurgeon knew not all would turn to Christ. He knew many would persist in their sinful ways and that they would die in their unbelief. But his prayer was that those sinners would be, that those sinners that would be damned would have heard the gospel of Christ that they would have been implored to turn to Jesus and repent of their sin. If we are to bear fruit, we must abide in Christ 
is apart from him, we can do nothing. We can't save anyone. But does our satisfaction allow us to be content with knowing we're good? Doesn't matter about them, we're good. We must not settle for good when passing up what is best or what is greatest. And this means that we understand that God will prune some good things from our lives. And in doing so, we may not be able to rest in our satisfactions. So may we seek him all the more. May we call sinners to repentance as we go. You see, there's barriers to moving along the chairs, but as long as we remain in Christ, then we will move along the way, bearing the fruit of making disciples. This has been the whole crux. Like I was saying about it over the course of last week, I literally think I started preaching 2 Timothy 2.2 back in January. It'll be July next week. That means for six months, we've examined from God's word, not something that we've come up with from somewhere else, from God's word, the realities that the church has been implored by Jesus to make disciples because this is what brings the Father the most glory. May we desire to abide in Jesus. May we recognize the barriers that hinder that. May we be a people who uproot sin and cast it before the throne of God. Repent. It almost, you see the picture. When you read the Old Testament, we talk about these people, they repent. How did they repent? In sackcloth and ashes. It, was, it doesn't have to be dramatic, but it was real. They repented before a holy God when they understood their offense before him. May we have the same attitude of uprooting and dealing with sin in our lives. May we recognize that part of his work in us is going to be pruning out good things for the sake of better things. And may we be a people in our quest to make disciples who never settle in our satisfaction for anything other than the best, the greatest, what brings the Father the most glory, bearing disciples, or making disciples bearing fruit.